Welcome to the Moves Room, everybody. Not a whole lot to tell you today before we get into the show. Andrew Swanson back with us talking beef genetics today. If you didn't get a chance to listen to last week, we talked dairy beef genetics with Andrew, and it was a great episode. So enjoy this episode. Thank you again to Andrew for coming in. Welcome to the Moves Room, everybody. We are back with Andrew Swanson. Andrew is from Select Sires. Today, we're in his wheelhouse. We're talking beef genetics. Just like last time in uh, the dairy beef episode, Andrew, give us just a little bit of a breakdown how you select sires and you can help beef producers and if they need help, how they get a hold of you. Yep. Well, thanks for having me on again, guys. Yeah. So anything to do with uh, beef reproduction, we, we can help. We've got a, a large team of people that can help with actually uh, uh, breeding the cows and artificially inseminating them. If you need help with matings on uh, what bulls you're going to use on your cows, uh, overall reproductive health of your cows, and uh, uh, different options that uh, we can provide to help you uh, ultimately put uh, more money in your pocket. Perfect, perfect. And if you, you know, you're looking for your rep, you're looking for how to get a hold of these guys, in addition to checking out our website, extension.umn.edu, please head to selectsires.com and mnss.coop mnss.coop for the Minnesota specific website for select sires. I guess we're going to start, we're going to start a new thing on our beef episodes. We're asking everybody their favorite beef breed. So let's start with our guest, and then we'll get into, we'll, we'll see, we'll see what everybody else says. Uh, Andrew, what's your favorite beef breed? Well, I'm looking at everyone here smiling. So I'm excited to, to see what everyone's going to uh, come up with, but I'll, uh, I'll say Black Angus is my favorite uh, beef breed, probably the most common breed that I work with and uh, grew up with. And uh, yeah, that, that would definitely still be my choice. Sounds good. Emily, what do you got? You ready for this? I, I'm ready. My, and, like, I'm serious. I have liked this breed for several years. I like Kianinas. Oh, Kianinas. oh yeah. Keys, okay. yeah. Okay. They're pretty. I mean, I'll be honest. I'm going to have to look up how to spell that. Uh, when I put it on the tally sheet, but C H starts with a N I N A. I will still look it up later because there's no way I caught all that. But that's okay. Yeah, well, it's because Bradley was talking over me. Rude. That's <laughs> all good. All right, Brad, what's your favorite breed? Well, of course, Hereford. Hereford. So we're gonna go with Herefords. Why? Why? Uh, family. My grandfather had Herefords. Family. I, I am also a big fan of Herefords. I, I really do like working with them, but I, I can't say they're my favorite. I am also going to have to say Black Angus. Biased because I, I kind of grew up being around them out West and, and I just, I'm just biased straight up. That puts them in the lead for the first ever What's Your Favorite Beef Breed. Black Angus with two, Geese with one, and Herefords with one. And we'll keep we'll keep that tally just like we keep it for the dairy side. So... Good. I'm, I'm surprised. We, you know, I was expecting a mini breed, any mini Herefords out there, but we'll see if anybody well, says Well, you know, in a close future. second, belted they, they, Galloway for me. But. Of course, you got to have that <laughs> Oreo. Had to. <laughs> had to. Had to. Andrew, let's get to actual questions and stuff uh, that, that has to do uh, with what you do. What are you seeing out there for breeds? I mean, we'll talk about breeds. What are you seeing out there in commercial operations? What are you seeing? For sure, the most common breed would be Angus um, that we use uh, beef on beef. 
I'd say at least 80 to 85% of what we sell for semen would be, would be black Angus. And then maybe about 5% red Angus, 5% Simmental, and then, you know, some Hereford and Charlet limousine kind of round out what, uh, what we do for, for business in the co-op area. What is, what is that going into? So, you know, we're, you're selling a lot of Angus, but what's, what's on the other end? What are these mama cows? Are they yep. purebreds? Are they crossbreds? What are they? For the most part, I would say the largest part of our business would be commercial heifers. So having said that, uh, we would also work with commercial cows, uh, registered heifers and registered cows, but I'd say 50 plus percent would fit that category specifically of commercial heifers. We do breed probably a large amount of registered cattle as well, but I'd say the bulk of our business easily would be with the commercial cow-calf producers. Does that mean, are you talking crossbreds basically? Is that what it, what it is or well, pure, are, are you talking yep. purebreds or crossbreds or how does that, how does all that work? Yep, so it, uh, uh, yes, crossbreds, uh, a lot of straight bred Angus, but they're not, they're not registered. I mean, they've, their families have bred Angus for decades and decades and, and that's um, about as Angus as you can be without being, you know, registered Angus. So I'm curious, what are, you know, the arguments you hear on both sides of that? Because we see it in dairy, right? Guys that swear by their, nope, we're just straight Holsteins or straight jerseys uh, versus the weirdos like Bradley that are like, I will only do crossbreeds crossbreds, and eventually some Dutch belted. Um, So what do you hear from cow-calf producers as far as like, what are the arguments for the commercial guys? What are the arguments for the registered or the ones that are just, you know, breeding straight with the same breed, whether it's Angus or something else? Right. Great, great question. Uh, that's probably the, the most fun part of my job. When, when you're out in the country, you hear different takes on why people breed cattle the way they breed them. And, and you know, one guy can, can say A and the second guy can say B and they will be polar opposites and, and no one's right and no one's wrong. And it's, uh, it's really interesting to hear different reasons on, on why people make their uh, decisions on how they breed. You know, we've got different types of producers in our area. On the west end of our co-op, it, it's really common to be as much Angus as possible, moderate framed cattle, easy fleshing, you know, good feet, good udders. That, that's the absolute focus point. It, it's not about the, the biggest calf or the, you know, the, 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 the tallest frame or the, the heaviest calves, but it's consistent, uh, easy fleshing type, moderate framed cattle uh, to the west. As you move farther east in the co-op, like eastern North Dakota and into Minnesota, a lot of different opinions. Uh, I'd say in general, as you move east, the frame size of cattle gets bigger. It has to do with your feedstuffs, right? So we've got corn silage as we go east. Uh, we can grill corn and, and, and have corn silage as a feed source. So in general, I'd say people breed a little bigger cattle as you go east. Maybe not as easy fleshing type cattle, but you can feed it into them. Corn is... Uh, pretty cheap right now as, as you all know and uh, yeah it just seems like you know more, more growth and more performance as you move east uh, throughout the co-op area. So, so what really drives that I mean we're talking about corn and feed but is it really efficiency I mean are our cattle in the as you go west more efficient because they have to be or is it is it truly just a frame size difference? 
I would say that in general, smaller cattle would be more efficient if I had to pick from a, a feed efficiency standpoint. I don't, like I said, it just depends where you live. You know, to the to the east, you know, we've got smaller pastures and we've got more feed stuff, so you can put more management into the cattle to the east. But as you go west, you know, it, it's open country, uh, big big pastures. It's it's all about you know real functional, moderate in general type cattle. Yeah, I, I think we, we see this on the dairy side too. And, you know, we talk about it, especially when we, I think we talked about it in the Azores episodes when we, I was really surprised that we had cattle on grass basically 365 days a year and they were tall, leggy show Holsteins. And that doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. I, I, I'm totally biased. I love, you know, small to moderate frame cattle. I think they're, they're so much more efficient. I think we get a, away with having really big cattle here in Minnesota and in certain parts because of the luxury of our feedstuffs. And I'm not saying that you're, you know, right or wrong one way or the other, but it it makes total sense to me uh, why people breed the way they do, you know, with the feedstuff and the ability to raise heavy steer calves at weaning, you know, you're getting paid by the pound. So although it's important to be efficient at the same time, it's not wrong by any means to, to, you know, breed them big and breed them tall like we do in, in the eastern part of North Dakota and into Minnesota. As we have said again and again on this podcast with various things, a lot of it also comes down to management style and management goals. And I, you know, this is no exception to that. And I think, yeah, people have their preferences and it might be that this is what fits with the way I manage. And if you have facilities to manage larger animals, you will. And if you don't, you won't. Doesn't some of the large size really come down to processors and what they have for facilities and what they're willing to take. How much is that a factor in all of this? Yeah, we so, don't know. So in general, I'd say the uh, like the, the the bigger cows that would raise bigger calves in general. I think uh, they're not going to get necessarily way too big, you know, compared to like a Holstein type carcass. I think that would be a a bigger issue than the commercial beef you know beef on beef type animal that that uh, hits the rail but yeah for sure something to take into consideration the, the processing plants become extremely inefficient if they have to shut down for for that reason while we're on that topic we kind of are, are talking a little bit about efficiency and, and how it has to do with your management system but are there ways for producers to select for efficiency can they can they find ways to really narrow down and say that this is what i want i want an efficient efficient herd yep so uh there's there's tools that uh, for sure can be used to, to help with that process if you look at like the uh, angus set of epds under their uh, production traits they've got radg which is rate of average daily gain and dmi which is dry matter intake so both of those would would have a lot to do with uh, feed efficiency and and you can use you know epds in general not just in feed efficiency, um, but uh, across the board, calving ease, growth, carcass, maternal traits. I wouldn't put all my eggs in the, the basket of freedom off of your EPDs, but for sure, EPDs are a good option of uh, uh, a good tool to use when making those decisions. How, how often do you see guys using dollars EN? It's probably becoming more and more popular, but honestly, not, not that much uh, in my experience to this day to, admittedly more and more but but not a whole lot huh. that i mean that's a that's an index that i've always 
it's dollars EN would be an efficiency rating or basically a dollar amount that allows you to compare cows and how easy keeping they are, basically how much feed do they, do they take to do their job? And it gives you an actual dollar amount per head when you compare cows on basically how much it costs to keep them around uh, in, in terms of feed. So, I mean, it's always made a lot of sense. I mean, you got that cow all winter, why not, why not select for it? But yeah, I, I've seen the same thing. I don't see a whole lot of people using it. And, and maybe there's something I'm unaware of as to why you shouldn't. What are they using for EPDs? You know, what are, what are farms uh, and producers selecting for? Yep. So when you, uh, when you look at the EPDs and the, the dollar indexes of, uh, let's just say the, we're going to work with Angus cattle. Having ease easily would, would be number one. And, and you talk about differences of opinion and, and uh, calving ease is a, 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 as well as birth weights are really interesting. You know, on, on one end of the spectrum, we work with producers that they want to touch none of their heifers at calving. They, they want to put no assistance into their heifers calving. So, so they, honestly, lately, I've been hearing more and more that we've got too much calving ease into some of these cattle and, and, you know, our, our birth weights are, are small. So I think mm-hmm. it's, you know, maybe time to turn around in, in some uh, uh, systems for sure. I mean, there's plenty of studies to show you that, that, that birth weight, there's not, they don't make up that weight, you know? And, and so if you have 50, 55 pound calves sitting in the ground, when that animal could be having a 80, 90 pound calf. I mean, they're not going to make that weight up. So I, I'm, I'm totally on board with that. I think we've gone too far in some instances, but, but there is a peace of mind aspect to all that. You know, some people really don't want to have to worry about it and really don't want to be out there or can't, you know, so I, I get why people are, are selecting for that super high calving ease and that low birth weight. Well, and the, the, the one argument is that you, you sell them by the pound. So you need as many pounds as absolutely possible. And the other argument is that you can't sell them if they're they're not alive. So you need a live calf first. So it's kind of a, a balancing act of uh, of what works for you on on your farm or your range. Yeah, I, I agree with that. That's a that's a good point. You know, it, it it takes a it takes a lot of bigger calves to make up for a calf that's not alive. It doesn't always work. There's definitely a, a tightrope to walk there. So other EPDs uh, that uh, our producers uh, look at when making these decisions would be weaning weight and yearling weight. Producers want growth, uh, whether it's a Cavanese bull or if it's a, a cow bull, uh, a non Cavanese, you know, bigger birth weight type bull, they want growth. So weaning weight and yearling weight for sure would be, you know, right behind Cavanese for what producers look at. More and more popular would be uh, the carcass traits, as well as the Angus Association last year released dollar M, so dollar maternal index. So after years and years of chasing terminal type cattle, the association is putting some emphasis on dollar maternal. So that would include things like uh, heifer pregnancy and uh, uh, feet, uh, claw, both claw and angle EPDs, mature cow size, mature cow weight, that would all factor into the, the dollar M uh, index. And that, and that seems like a great index. And there's definitely, you know, different strategies out there for what people want to do, what they want to breed. Do they want to raise their own replacements or not. And that's a great index to look at if that's something you want to do. Yep, for sure. All right. Well, I guess that, that transitions right into our question of, unless Bradley, you got a question? Who was? Yeah, sure. Go ahead. No, I always got questions. <laughs> so, it, you know, it's my uh, genetic 
thought is going, and maybe this is sort of a little off topic, but are producers using genomic testing in beef breeds? And are they using that EPD information from those genomic tests? Or, you know, what, what's sort of happening in the beef world uh, that, that you've been seeing as far as genomic testing of those breeds? Yeah, great, great question, Brad. Uh, for sure, genomic testing has become really popular, especially with the seed stock herds that we work with. So, A, the, the, the number one reason a lot of people are, are genomic testing, and, and we talked about this a little before the podcast started, Joe, is that uh, the, the parent verification is huge. So when you can, when you can properly identify your cattle, I think that's just, just a huge, if you're going to be in the seed stock business, it's, it's a must for that reason alone. On top of that, with genomic testing, you're incorporating information into your EPDs. You're, you're not moving the accuracy maybe a ton right away on like a yearling bull or a, a yearling heifer, uh, but you are improving the accuracy on your EPDs. So you're, you're making them more accurate so you can make better decisions based on the, the trend on, on, on the traits you look at, the trend of their EPDs on, on how they're moving with, with genomic. So that falls right in with uh, whether or not producers should buy replacements or raise their own. That's a topic that has come up quite often in the last few years. And uh, there's some economic data out there to show that, that maybe it has to do with herd size. Give me your thoughts on that, Andrew. What, what do you think? Yeah, great question. I don't know if I have an answer to that. I, I think that uh, it, it probably would be tough economically if you're raising, if you put genetics aside, you're probably better off to buy your heifers, would, would kind of be my gut feeling. At the same time, you know, I, I work for Minnesota Select Sires, and, and we put a lot of value on genetics. And uh, if you're breeding maternal-type cattle, and you put emphasis on foot quality and, and udder quality and fleshing ability, I, I think those are all things to consider that if you're breeding for those types of traits, I think you need to put some value on the genetics that you're raising and, and for sure consider keeping your own replacement females. Probably, we, we probably do work with more producers that do raise their own heifers. And, and then we breed heifers, you know, out of, uh, you know, years worth of select sires breedings. But I don't know if people that don't put value on genetics, I don't know if people that don't AI, if, if they can say the same thing, uh, you know, for, for, for raising versus buying their heifers. I think that the tricky part about all of it, too, is that most of the, the data and the economic uh, data that I've seen is from places not in Minnesota. So you're looking at, at data from Nebraska and, and that system, especially uh, with how different our feed is, doesn't necessarily directly translate to Minnesota. So I, I think it is a, it's a personal choice, but I think it is one of those things that you should consider and should think about a lot more than we probably do right now. I think it's always been a given for a lot of people that you just raise your own replacements. Now, it's hard to put a dollar amount on biosecurity, too, so that always plays a big part in it. You can't be a closed herd if you're buying sure. replacements. So it, it's something to think about, something to talk to your veterinarian about, kind of run some some break-evens and see if it's right for you to, to buy rather than, than raise your own replacements. Because you can always put in, you know, if you're not raising your replacements, you can use a terminal bull. And there's a lot of money sitting there uh, when you use a terminal bull to breed rather than a maternal bull. I have a question that I have been wanting to ask you for a long time. I, I really wanted to ask you, 
how big a difference there is between show genetics and real world genetics and, and just start there. I, I think I have my opinion, but I want to get your take on it. I don't know how to answer that because there's probably both ends of the spectrum that are going to be listening to this, but uh, I think that you can breed for both. Having said that, 99% of the people that, that I work with are, you know, kind of oriented one way or the other. Yeah, I, I, I probably should just leave it at that. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to get you in trouble. I just, I, I, I've, I've always wanted to know that because I think we see, you know, on the dairy and the beef side, we see such a big difference. And I, and I, I don't know, maybe you can tell me, do you think they're kind of getting closer or farther apart? Or where do you think they're going? Maybe that won't get you in trouble so much. Yeah, I'd, I'd say they're they're probably um, in the industry in in general they're probably getting farther apart, but they're I'll go out of my way to say that there's some breeders that really really care about how their cattle look and they, they take a lot of pride in the phenotype of their their cows and their calves and and their their decisions. I mean it's 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 mainly based on phenotype, but it's it's not built for the show string. I mean they're they're making decisions based on functionality. And, and you know high phenotype cattle that are going to work in the real world so for sure like like we we talked about earlier there's some people breed them one way and some people breed them another way and that's the that's the beauty of this industry is that you can you know you, you can breed them how you want i think that's why i've fallen in love with with the cattle industry in general both dairy and beef is that it isn't cookie cutter it's not you know it's not like a, a swine barn a lot of times i mean if you've seen one you've seen most of them, you know, so I, I love that every apparition can be completely different, can be successful and they can tailor it uh, to be successful for their specific goals. And there's so many different ways to do it. And that's, that's why I love the industry so much. For sure. What do you think about AI? I mean, is, is a, I mean, obviously you're going to tell me that everyone should AI, I think, but is it for everyone or, or should, or is it, is it not something that everyone should do? Yeah, so I'm I'm trying to to think of a reason why it's not for everyone, and I'm I'm having a hard time. There, it's it's kind of two prong um, to how I'm going to answer this question. If if you talk about a, a commercial a cow calf operation, when you talk about synchronization and genetics, those are both two different parts of of what I do and and what we do as a company that really add value to you, right? So. Everyone wants to AI because of the genetics. You know, they, they hear this, this hot bull that sold for a lot of money, and that's the bull we want to use. And I don't know if, if I should be on record saying this, but I think I will. That's not the reason you should AI. I, I think if, if, uh, if you're looking at dollars and cents, there's a lot of value in, in what a sync protocol can do for you. So, you know, pe people, they want to, you know, AI and, and uh, you know, sp spread their, their calving out and, and, and breed for a month and, you know, get them bred to this bull. And, and, and that's fine. But I'd like to challenge those people to what if you synchronized your cows or your heifers and you could have 50 to 60 percent of your cows pregnant on day one of the breeding season. So three weeks later, when your cows or your heifers cycle back, you can you know, get, get done with that cycle and you can be day 25 into your breeding season and you can have 85 or 90% of your herd pregnant in, in that window. That, that, that has nothing to do with 
genetics. That's just the value of synchronization by, by moving your cows earlier, moving them tighter, uh, and, and ultimately making a more uniform calf crop. You know, when, when I teach slides at uh, AI school, we talk about the, the value of synchronization and, and what's it worth because it, it's kind of a preconceived notion that it, it's too expensive to, to synchronize your, your cow herd. Or if, you know, if, if you don't have any money, you can't synchronize. That's, that's what people think. And, and I always say to that, that if, if you feel like you don't have any money to synchronize, you should be the number one candidate to, to be synchronizing. You know, if you get your cow pregnant today instead of tomorrow, what's that worth? What do your calves gain on grass, Joel, when they're when they're growing? What conservatively, two pounds? Suit two pounds, one and a half to two pounds, yeah. Yep. And uh, what's a what's a pound worth in the fall on your calves? Every day that they're not gaining weight is it's worth quite a bit. If we use the numbers we were talking about last week, two to two forty. Yeah. So I mean, we're, we're talking three or three or four bucks a day to have your, your calf born today instead of tomorrow. That's huge. I mean, you don't have an expense in your operation that big per day per cow. Your, your feed cost is your biggest expense generally, and it's not that much. So for sure, you know, if, if you can on average move your cows up 10 days into your breeding season because of synchronization, you know, if you've got a hundred cows and three or four bucks times a hundred cows, you know, it, you're talking a lot of money when you move it across 10 days. So yeah, yeah. that's kind of the first prong. And then on top of that, now that we've, we've made you some money with synchronization, now we can talk about the value of, of what genetics can do for you. Well, I, I like that answer. And I, I will, uh, you'll probably be mad at me for throwing this in, but synchronization doesn't necessarily mean you need to AI. You know, there's a lot of value, like Andrew's talking about in synchronization, and you can put a bull out if you synchronize, you know, there's a lot of reasons that people don't AI. Um, and I think most of it, to be honest, when I'm talking about it, it's either time or facilities, uh, and facilities being or labor one. or labor or labor. Labor is a big one too. You're right. So, I mean, but facilities is what I see a lot that, uh, if you don't have a great way to handle everything and have that process go smoothly, you run into a train wreck when you're trying to work cattle and it doesn't work well when you're trying to breed. Um, but I, I would say, you know, I'll put my plug in, you know, I, I'm like Andrew, I think synchronization is a huge piece of this and tightening that calving window down. You just, it doesn't, synchronization does not necessarily mean you have to AI. You can put a bull out and there's a lot of studies to show that you actually don't need more bull power. If you're properly stocked already, you don't need to add an extra bull to that mix if you're synchronized and you, and you want to put a bull out. Well, we could get into sure. debates about synchronization because Brad takes the <laughs> other perspective. And Emily, what will I say? Use sensor. sensors. Use sensor a sensor, yes. Can, can you use activity monitoring systems? I know this is getting in off the subject, but. <laughs> Joe, you're going to have to make a super cut of all the times Brad mentions putting a sensor in Put a sensor in, in it. Just put a sensor on it, in it, around it. Yeah, I, I will have to make that a little cut. That can be cut. one of our t-shirts when we have merch. That's right. Put, <laughs> put a, a sensor, sensor in it. <laughs> I know, Andrew, you've been up breeding cows at a North Central Research Center in the University yep. of Minnesota with their beef Angus herd. They you're synchronizing there. I know previous faculty had a system up there, but I'm not sure if it's still there. 
Yep. So what we, we did up there was a seven day uh, cedar protocol, uh, which is probably the, the most common uh, for, for cows that I work with at this point this year. Now, a year from now, I might say something different because there's been a new new protocol uh, that's recently hit the industry that's got a lot of people talking. Re- really exciting long-term progesterone protocol for cows. So that's that's probably going to uh, take off next spring. Uh, I, I'd like to touch on, Joey, the uh, facilities and labor. Reasons not to AI. That's, uh, you know, when, when I started uh, with, with this job, it was kind of my goal to put myself in the producer's shoes. And, and that's exactly what I could come up with of why is not everyone with cows AI? Um, and, and that's what I came up with was facilities and labor. So uh, we kind of made it our mission as a co-op that that's, those are two problems that we can solve. So we've got a, a team of 16 independent reps and, and, and many employees within the company that have the ability to, to breed cows or, or work uh, cattle through, through a chute properly. From a labor standpoint, we've got that covered. And it took me about two years of convincing, but we did get the, the facilities going the right direction as well. We, we made a purchase a couple of years ago of a, a double wide breeding barn. So what we, what we do with that is we can bring that to you, set it up in front of your chute or in front of your alleyway whether it's in the yard or if it's on grass, we can bring it to you. So uh, w- with that breeding barn, we're able to uh, run cattle through efficiently, comfortably, uh, and, and get the job done without you necessarily having to go make a big uh, purchase of a working facility. Oh, yeah. And I, I think when I talk about facilities, I mean, I, I you don't need a ton. Like you need the basics, right? You need basically a way to crowd them up and an alley and you don't even really have to have a shoot in a lot of cases. You can rent a shoot. Uh, the vet can bring a shoot. You can bring a shoot. Uh, so I, I think it's still, it's still necessary to have the basics in place. But yeah, there's a lot of different ways to solve that. Uh, and the labor too. Yeah, I mean, we, when I was in practice, we always had a team come with and help us work cattle. And that having someone who's trained and knows how to handle cattle properly, it's, it's a huge value in that whole process because any stress on these cattle is not going to help your, your conception rate. So one of the other questions I had about AIing. So when you do AI on a farm, how many bulls are you using? Are you using just one bull for all the cows? Or are you trying to, trying to use a couple or, or what do you, how's that process look? Yep. Great, great question. So uh, again, that, that's going to go back to the, the breeder on what they want to do. So we've got these large commercial heifer projects where, like, uh, you know, after I get off this call, we're going to breed the, the remaining heifers of a 410 head sink project. And every one of them is getting the same bull. And the cleanup bulls that are going on these heifers are all sired by the same bull. So all these calves are going to be related to the bull that we are AIing to, right? So the mindset there is consistency over the, the, the course of the group, right? So if, if they're not AI bred to this bull, they're going to be bred to a son of this bull. And, and, and that's the, you know, one end of the spectrum mindset. And then, you know, the, the other end is, you know, we work with people that will go breed 50 head for, and I might be exaggerating, but we use 35 different bulls kind of all ends of the spectrum for, for what, the, what people decide to do. We didn't really get into timed AI protocols. You know, you, you mentioned the extended progesterone for cows. I mean, currently you're, you're running a seven-day cedar on everything, right, including heifers? Uh, 
Yep. So the probably the the most common and, and becoming more common for sure protocol for heifers would be the 14-day seeder. So that's a long-term progesterone uh, protocol for heifers. We we still do have producers that use MGA on heifers, but more and more it seems like the the 14-day uh, seeder for heifers is is the the way to synchronize them. And then cows uh, at this point would yes be it'd be the seven-day seeder. Tell us a little more about the extended progesterone. Is that that you're talking for the cows or are you guys, can you talk about it or yeah, is that data sure. that, for sure. okay. I'll, I'll tell you everything that, that I know and understand on it. Uh, so, so basically what it is, it's, it's a long-term progesterone protocol for cows, which doesn't exist. Uh, right now, you know, the seven day is easily the most common sync protocol for cows. Um, and that would be considered short-term progesterone. So with this long-term progesterone, uh, what, what they're doing is at cedar insertion, call that uh, Monday, instead of giving a shot of GNRH, you're actually going to give a shot of prostaglandin with the cedar insertion. You're going to come back one week later on a Monday, and you're going to give a shot of GNRH to all those cows, but you're not going to remove the cedar. You're going to leave the cedar in, but you're going to give a shot of GNRH. One week later, so it would be day 14 since the beginning of the protocol, you're going to run the cows through, remove the cedar, and give another shot of prostaglandin. And then you would either heat detect and breed off of that uh, up to 72 to 84 hours, or you would time breed from 60 to 66 hours with a shot of GNRH. So the, the results on that, um, it was South Dakota and Nebraska uh, last year, uh, 11 different locations side-by-side -side trials with this uh, long-term progesterone protocol against the seven-day cedar protocol. All 11 locations had better conception with the long-term progesterone, every one of them. And on average, the conception rate difference was 11 points better than the seven-day cedar. So that's huge to me. I, I think, you know, for, for one extra trip through the chute and one extra shot of two or three dollar prostaglandin, if you can gain 11 points, that's huge. I think a lot of people are going to be interested in that. A lot of people already are interested in that. The, the data for the protocol probably came out a little too late into the breeding season this year. Otherwise, I think it would have been very popular this spring already. I have not read that paper yet, so I got to find that and, re and read it. That's really interesting because uh, that one extra trip to the shoot starts to make a whole lot more sense if that, if that conception rate jump is real. For sure. Well, we got enough tape unless somebody's got more questions for Andrew. Anybody? Nothing? I don't. Okay. Let's wrap it. All right. That is a wrap on this episode. A big thank you to Andrew Swanson for showing up from Select Sires, talking beef genetics with us, and last week talking dairy cross beef genetics with us. Thank uh, you, guys. Thanks for having me on. I, I appreciate the opportunity and uh, if, if anyone uh, uh, is interested in anything that Select Sires can, can do for them, feel free to uh, give me a call. It's a great resource to, to have someone like Andrew on staff. And like you said, uh, it's a team approach at Select Sires. So they, they are willing to help you with all sorts of different things. Check out their website, selectsires.com. And check out the Minnesota-specific website at mnss.coop. Check out our website at extension.umn.edu. As always, scathing rebuttals, comments, questions, send them to the moose room at umn.edu.
That's T-H-E-M-O-O-S-R-O-O-M at UMN.edu. Also, check us out on Facebook at UMN Dairy and at UMN Beef. Those are our Facebook pages. We're trying to post as often as we can. We'd appreciate it if you have time. Throw those a like. Thank you for listening, everybody. Catch you next week. Put a sensor in it. Put a put a put a put a put a put a sensor in it.